title this morning. Um, I'm sitting yesterday thinking about a title for today's message. And uh, the thing that's going through my mind is, how can I come up with a title? It's only changed six times this week. Uh, I mean, the subject of what I was going to preach on has only changed like six times this week. So um, all week long, I've been specifically studying one text of Scripture over and over and over again. I'm like, I, I have this little New Testament. I, was, I, I took it with me everywhere I went. If I was in the truck, I was reading it. And I was just over and over reading it, reading it, reading it, planning on it, doing some, getting some commentary input on it, and just studying it, just, just over and over thinking, this is where I should be going. And then I'd come back to this other subject. <laughs> like, but, oh, Lord, I just studied all this time for this whole week into this. And, and God's like, no, that's not where I want you. So I start later in the week concentrating on this other subject over here. And I still am like, Oh, this ain't it either. Oh, this is getting scary. There's, only, there's nothing worse than standing up in front of people and thinking, boy, this is not what I planned all week. I'm not really sure what is planned, and Lord, what are you doing? Because I wish you'd let me in on it. Um, so yesterday, I come to about the fifth title. And uh, so here's what it is. A plea for revival. A plea for revival. We all have an idea of what revival is in our minds. Someone asked me the question a couple weeks ago, how often have you seen a revival in your lifetime? And quite honestly, most of us have never seen it in our lifetime, if we're honest with ourselves. I'm not talking about having a revival meeting. Oftentimes, they don't produce revival, if you understand what I'm saying. Churches across America have dates on the calendar where they'll invite a guest speaker in and bring the hellfire brimstone messages. And they used to say about evangelists, they, they blow in, blow up, and blow out. And uh, I used to joke about it because I traveled as an evangelist for a couple years, and uh, I was part of that joke. But the reality is you can't orchestrate revival. You can't. Um, I can tell you on numerous occasions as I traveled across the country, and my family remembers this, we lived in a 40-foot fifth wheel, and we went from church to church to church for several years, and um, I can remember some things, I, I remember thinking to myself, you've got to be kidding me, he did not just say that. And what I heard was the pastor saying, because as I was walking in with my family, they were like, oh, there's a new family visiting with us today. Okay. And the pastor would get up and say, oh, by the way, Today starts our revival meetings. There was no announcement that any evangelist was coming. There was no prayer put into the time of what might happen to even pretend there might be a revival. And I think, lest we're too critical and hard on that, I think that's an attitude that has swept across churches across America. We don't plan for revival, let alone corporate revival, let alone personal revival. And it's really something I've been praying about the last several months. God, bring a revival in our midst. Start with me. God, do something where we know your hand is at work. You've heard me say that over and over. God, just pray that we're praying that something will happen where we know that it's not man-orchestrated, it's not man-centered, it's not man-started. A revival. Because I believe that we as a church and churches across America have grown complacent. We don't really expect God to do something good or great. Would you kind of just show up every week because that's our duty? So over the last month, I've had plenty of time to think, read, pray, and wonder. 
why did God have me to go through the sickness for a month, a staph infection, just almost starting to feel a bit better than pneumonia and not able to be here where I want to be here. And when I am here, just thinking, man, I want to preach and can't. And God, why? I mean, I hate being sick. Any, anyone else? I mean, I don't like sick. I used to say when I was growing up, half of being sick is in your head. Just You get started to get cold. It's like, I'm not happening. This is not happening. Nope, I'm going to fight through it. And then you, God puts you in a, in a position where you can't fight through it. He has you down, and He has you down for a reason. And what is God trying to teach me through all this? And what, am I, what is it that I'm supposed to learn? And I'm not sure I can answer all those questions, but the marble in my head began to roll around, and, and at times ricocheting like a pinball machine. You know, just thinking, boom, boom, and all these thoughts coming in my head. And I'm like, okay, God, what is it? But I can tell you with certainty, over the last month, my mind has not stopped. I've come to at least one conclusion, though, and it's this. God has more in store for this church than what we're experiencing. Do you believe that? Why is it that a church can stay at the same level of commitment, maybe even to call it a level of mediocrity, or maybe a, a, a level of contentment for so many years, and not see God's hand on, hand on it and, and, and an opportunity to move forward? If God doesn't have something better for us, then we're all fooling ourselves. If God doesn't have something more for us, we are kidding ourselves, and he's a narcissistic God who's sitting up there saying, go ahead, pray, but I'm not going to do anything. If God doesn't have something more for us, we are wasting our time. I have to believe he's got more for us. How is it that we can pray for 20 years for certain things and never change? Is it because we're not praying fervently? Is it because we're praying with sin in our lives and we're not truly fully committed or surrendered? Why is it that we can just exist and be okay with okay? That's not right. But if that's all God has, I guess it's what we can expect, right? Have you ever met someone whose brain just doesn't stop? It's typically engineers, musicians, and a lot of pastors that I know. You go to bed, but you really don't go to bed. You kind of like sit there all night long because your mind doesn't stop. And because it doesn't stop, there's just like, it's like that pinball is going back and forth with thoughts and you know, ADHD long before they had the, had the subject or the, the title or whatever was in this brain because it just doesn't stop some days. And that's what's been happening over the last month. What is it that God's trying to do in our midst? You go to bed and you start thinking about it. You wake up thinking about it. You're up in the middle of the night thinking about it. Because it doesn't really matter whether you put in 40 hours, 50 hours, 60 hours, 80 hours. The work is never done, right? The work of the ministry never stops. It doesn't stop on Friday night after 5 o'clock. It just goes and goes and goes. And I guess if you're okay with okay, then it's relax time. But what is it that God's trying to show all of us? What is it that God is trying to do in all of our midst to take our church another step for Him? But I can tell you with certainty that if we don't pray, believe, and act in confidence in His Word, we'll miss what God has for us. And I know I've said it before, but the passage in Matthew just never escapes my mind. And Jesus did not many mighty works there because of their what? Unbelief. It wasn't that God couldn't do works through Jesus there. It wasn't that Jesus didn't want to do works there. 
but he made a decision. You don't expect me to do anything? Guess what? I'm not going to disappoint you. Until we get to the place where we will take God at his word and start believing that he wants to do something and we're willing to act in obedience, nothing is going to change. I don't want that for the rest of my life. I don't want that for the future of our church. I don't want to look back 20 years from now and say, well, we should have trusted God then. We should have taken some more steps of obedience. We should have exercised our faith a little bit more. We should have put a little bit more trust in him and end up 20 years later in the same spot that we are now. You say, well, Pastor Ken, are you wanting to just see a mega church? No, I've never put a number on this church. I've never put a number of, a number of people have to be here. But I know this, healthy things grow. And if we're not growing, if your plants don't grow, if your garden's not growing, if your three-year-old toddler's not growing, guess what? It's probably because they're not healthy. It is a sign of whether or not there is true health. The number's up to God. But the obedience is up to us. Right? Might it be possible that many of us have grown content? And if we're honest with ourselves and honest with each other, we don't spend much time in prayer, personally or corporately. We have opportunities to come to the church and pray as a body, and so few show up. We have opportunities to spend time in prayer with brothers and sisters, and a few of us are taking advantage of that. But overall, I think a lot of us are just like, well, we're too busy. We'll do that later. We'll get a little more committed later. We'll kind of get involved a little bit later. I mean, right now, work is busy. Or, you know, raising kids is hard, and God, you know, we just don't have time. And we have a million excuses as to why we can justify, rationalize, and excuse why we don't do it. But here's the point. We don't do it. I'm not preaching at you. I'm saying I'm part of the problem. I want to do more. And as a result of not spending much time in prayer, consequently, many of us have stopped acting upon his word. We're just going through the motions. We've grown content. Which is why I'm praying for revival. And revival has to start inwardly before it can ever start corporately as a church. And until we become personally convicted of the fact that we need to change, nothing will. Someone asked me the other day, I was in the doctor's appointment for a checkup, and I, my doctor walked in and says, Wow, you've changed. Did you like lose some weight or something? And I looked at her and I said, yeah. She goes, well, how much have you lost? She goes, oh, wait a minute. Wow, last time you're in here, he goes, that's almost 80 pounds. I'm like, yep. She goes, are you sick? <laughs> no. She goes, well, why'd you do it then? So you did this on purpose. Why'd you do it? I said, two reasons. The first one you'll understand. The second one you may not. The first one is I want to walk my daughter down the aisle someday. I felt like if I did nothing, I was going to go to an early grave. And secondly, I said, I want to serve God for the rest of my life, faithfully. And she looked at me and she goes, okay. But it's the truth. It's the driving factor. I told my wife months ago that if I don't do something with my health, I will not be here in 10 years. 
and I will not be serving God in 10 years. I'll be dead. I honest before God believed that. It was my motivation to start thinking about the future. And I've tried for years. But God's been gracious in allowing me to take some weight off and start being a little more healthy. But my motivation is I want to serve him. I, want to, I don't want to die within 10 years and, and be in the grave. And Well, he did it to himself. He just, you know, couldn't do it. Until you are convinced in your mind that things need to change, they won't. You get that? Until you are convinced that there's a problem, nothing will change. That's the problem. We're not convinced that there's a real problem. I mean, watch it on the news every night. The Republicans say, there's a problem at the wall. Democrats, there's no problem. If you're not convinced, it's not going to change. So I've been praying for revival. Personally. Corporately for our church. Because I want to see people saved. I want to see people baptized. I want to see people added to the church and discipled. I want to see God do something. So, you might be here today wondering, do you think we as a church are content? Mm Mm-hmm. I would have to say emphatically, yes, we are. Why? Because things relatively don't change. We're okay with the way things are. We're okay with okay. Bills are paid, relatively speaking. I mean, for the major things, we seem to get them covered somehow. I mean, nobody's fighting with each other. I mean, we don't have anybody that got, you know, we don't got no World War III's breaking out in the Harvest Bible. We're, we're pretty good. In fact, I've even heard a couple guys say in the last month, I'm surprised we're doing pretty good. I mean, we're, we're, we're actually doing pretty good. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, we are? Seriously? Because I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing people saved as much as I'd like to see. I'm not seeing people baptized as much as I'd like to see. I'm not seeing people coming forward for membership and saying, I want to be a part of God, God's work here in Henrietta. But we're pretty good. No, we're not. We're not. And I'm preaching to myself here. So if it applies to you, jump on the bandwagon, but I'm preaching to myself. A lot of us are okay with being okay. And many of us have convinced ourselves that we're really walking with God and are in complete obedience in every area of our life. We're pretty good. We've convinced ourselves of that. Because if we weren't convinced of that, we'd be doing something different. He's on a rampage this morning. But think about it. Put yourself in the Scripture. Are you where God wants you to be? Listen, I want God's blessing on our church. I want to see His hand at work. I want to experience people loving God, serving people, growing together. And I thought to myself the other day, the, the, the kind of a mission statement that we've had for a while, loving God, serving people, growing together. I see that there are people who love God. I see that. Then I think about the second part of it, serving people. Hmm. When's the last time that any of us got into the community and served people? When's the last time that's happened? When's the last time we went to our neighbor's house and just said, hey, I want to love on you? Oh, now you're not saying those words, but you noticed the need and you were willing to address it. When's the last time we even got 
an opportunity to talk with our neighbors. One door down, two doors down, three doors down. But we're walking with God. We're pretty good. We've got to quit lying to ourselves, people. We need to quit telling ourselves that we're okay. We asked a question. I don't know who started the question years and years ago. I've heard it since I was in junior high. How healthy would we be if we only ate physically what we ate spiritually? How healthy would we be? Because God's word says, I've esteemed your word more necessary than my physical food. But most of us don't believe that. Because we don't miss a meal physically, but we're all too often willing to miss a meal spiritually. Am I right? Let's be honest. Preaching myself here too. You say, well, how do I know if this applies to me? How do I know if I'm one of the spiritually sick and need a spiritual healing and whether I'm the one that needs to go through some repentance in my own life? How do I know that? Well, I'm going to be jumping around to about five or six passages of Scripture as I do often. So if I'm going too fast, just hold on. Matt will get them up there. But let me just jump through a few of them. James chapter 4, verse 17 says, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Don't raise your hand unless you feel led to do so. But how, many, how often do we know that we're supposed to be doing something and we're willing to let it go, not do it? How often do we know that the Holy Spirit is prompting us to take another step of obedience, prompting us to increase our faith, prompting us to trust Him more, and we just say, oh well. And we kind of quickly dismiss it as no big deal. But to Him who knows to do right and doesn't do it, to Him it is sin. But we're okay with that. I mean, my personal sin doesn't affect anyone else. It affects me. No, nobody sins in a vacuum. Sin affects all of us, right? How about Luke chapter 6, verse 46? He says, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Well, is, is that really us, Pastor? I think it is sometimes as a church. God wants us to take a step of faith. No, nope, not going to do that. I'm thankful for how God provides. I really am. Don't misconstrue what I'm about to say. But when we had our flood, a third to a half of that came from, the money that came to replace it came from friends outside the church rather than people within our church. Say, is that a problem? No, I'm thankful for God, how, how God provides. But the responsibility for this facility is on God's people in this facility. But if we're too scared not willing to trust God with our funds, not willing to take a step of faith, we're not going to see God at work in our own midst. Within our fellowship of churches, we have a, a relationship, partnership with those outside our state and other states. Some of the bigger fellowships will help some of the smaller fellowships. This last week I had a meeting with our state leaders. And here's what I said. I'm tired of our churches in our state looking to churches outside our state to meet our needs in our state. I'm tired of that. Why are we looking for churches all the way across the United States 
to take care of our needs. We should be strong enough to take care of our own needs if we're walking in fellowship and obedience to God. I'm thankful for the partnerships. But as my friend said, it's time for us as churches to grow up. Put our big shoes on and say, God, I'm going to take that step. Quit depending on everyone else to do what we should be doing ourselves. God's word tells us in John 14, says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Let's just kind of break that down in English. It says, if you, God is speaking, says, if you love me, you'll be obedient. So what does it say that if I'm not walking in obedience, what's that say about my love for him? Let's kind of make that deduction. What does it say? We don't love him as we say we do. Both sides, that's true. If you love him, you'll do it. And if you're not doing it, it's probably because you don't love him as you ought. And our prayer would be, God, forgive me. Help me to love you as I ought. 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Whoa, those are harsh words. Ouch. He says, if you say that you love him, and yet you don't obey, he says, you're a liar. You don't love me as you say you do. That's God speaking. I hate hearing those words. It's condemning. And oftentimes, all too true. Proverbs 28, verse 13, who who covers his sins will not prosper. You say, well, Pastor, I just don't see God at work sometimes in my life, and we just kind of lose faith, we lose hope, and I, I pray and I pray, and yet I don't see Him doing anything, and I just I don't know what to do, so I just kind of I kind of forget, and I kind of just kind of give up, and I just kind of do my own thing, and I kind of stop praying, and blah 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 blah. And here's what He says: He who covers his sins will not prosper. Are there areas of sin in my life that I'm not dealing with? And God's saying, until you deal with that, you're not going to see my hand of blessing and prosperity on you. You're not going to see it. We've talked about this a thousand times. Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If we are consistently praying and getting our knees before God and God is not speaking to us, God is not answering you, whether it's yes, no, or maybe, or no, or otherwise, or wait till later, if we're not sensing the Spirit of God working in our lives, we have to ask why. And there has to be a bit of honesty on our part to say, God, is there a sin in my life that I'm not dealing with? Is there a sin that I just don't think is that big of a deal? And he's saying it is a big deal because you're breaking my heart and you're breaking fellowship and until you're willing to deal with it, I'm not going to bless your prayers. Because God says if I regard iniquity, I'm not going to listen. It's like so often in our lives, we want the blessings of God, but we don't want to be obedient to God. Does is, is anybody not want God's blessing? I want them. I want God's blessing on our church. I want God's blessing on my family. I want God's blessing on my life. But if I'm not willing to walk in obedience, I have no reasonable expectation that I deserve it. I don't deserve it anyway. But certainly not if I'm not walking in obedience. Could this be why we're not seeing God's hand at work in our lives? Because we as a church have not repented of sin in our lives, both corporately and personally. It's this idea that we're okay. 
1 John 1, 8 and 10 address this. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So if we're not willing to deal with the sin because we don't think it's a big deal, in other words, we're saying, well, it's not, you know, we don't have to deal with this, then we're saying, God, God, you're a liar. Those are harsh words. You say, well, I would never say that. And I would add the words verbally. But we often use the phrase, actions speak louder than words. You talk talks, your walk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Our lives speak more than our mouths. How we live says more than what we say. We should never take God at his, take, take, take what he says and just say, well, put it aside, it's not that big a deal. Sin is a big deal. James 1, 22 through 25 Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving ourselves. I'm going to put myself in what I'm about to say. How many of us have heard what God wants us to do? See, you've heard this phrase before. There are sins of omission and sins of commission. Sins that we are committing by omitting certain things out of our lives and certain sins that we are doing by committing them. You see, we look at the sins of commission more often than we do the sins of omission. We say, well, I haven't committed adultery. I haven't stolen anything. I'm not currently lying to anybody. I'm pretty good. I mean, I haven't fill in the blank. I haven't done this. I haven't done that. I'm not like that. I'm pretty good. I haven't committed those sins. But what about the things that God says should be in your life that you've omitted? Prayer. Reading God's word. Sharing your faith. Trusting him. Walking in faith and obedience. How good am I at that? Or have we come to the conclusion that we're okay? We're good enough. I wonder if any of these verses might at least in part describe many churches today, if not our church. Remember the church is who? It's you and I. I wonder if some of these verses, if we're honest with ourselves, don't apply to us personally. Revelation chapter 3, when he was talking about the church in Laodicea, in verses 15 and 16, he says, I know your works, <laughs> that you are neither hot nor cold. I could wish you were cold or hot. Stop right there. He's preaching to this church. And he says, I know your works. Lest you think anything we are doing or not doing is hidden from God. Wow. Ultimate accountability. Like it or not, ultimate accountability. He says, I know your works. 
He says, I wish you were either cold or hot. You see, when someone's hot, you know it. When someone's cold and not living for God, you most of the time know it. But when you're in the middle, you can kind of fool a lot of people. Kind of show up at church and kind of give the idea that things are good. Things are okay. I'm a Christian. I fool a lot of people when I'm in the middle. But the true test is when I'm at work, living with a bunch of unsaved people who don't attend church, do you, you act like them? Or when you're at church and you know those who are really living for God and walking in obedience and faith and trust, and do you act like them? Or are you secretly hiding out in the middle? God says, I know your works. You're not hot or cold. He says, I wish you were either hot or cold. He says, so then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Those are some strong words. He said, you make me want to throw up. Make up your mind. Either serve me or don't, but don't stay in the middle. Makes me want to vomit, he says. Being okay is not okay, he's saying. You've got to make up your mind. At some point, you're either going to serve God or you're not. This is some really strong words. Accusations of being lukewarm, a desire to vomit. Those are some strong words he uses here. I don't know about you, but if someone told me that, I would not want to accept that. You make me sick to my stomach. Who wants to hear that? Well, the reason he could say that is he knew their heart. So, if any or all these verses apply to you or me, what's the solution? Repentance. Repentance. Do you remember a time in your life where you read your Bible more, prayed more, served more, gave more, were closer, were more loving, more faithful, more surrendered than you are right now? Do you remember that kind of a time frame in your life? If you do, I think repentance is necessary. Maybe we feel like we've drifted back a little bit. And God is saying, take another step. Get back to where you once were walking in fellowship with God. But as I said earlier, until you are convinced that you need to change, you never will. You never will. So how do I repent? 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, I'm sorry. I'm in sin. Forgive me. I love what it says in Joel chapter 2, and verse 12 and 13. It says, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, so rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and that He relents from doing harm. God says, if you will turn to me, I will forgive you. I will withhold the, the, the wrath that you deserve if you will turn to me. He's slow to anger, and I'm thankful that He is. It was it Vance Hadner who said, if God treated us today the way He did in the days of Ananias and Sapphira, Every church would need a morgue in its basement. Oh God, I'm thankful for his forgiveness and his long-suffering 
and his, impatient, his patience with us. Because if we got what we deserved, none of us would be sitting here today. I wouldn't be. He's patient. It's never too late to turn back to God. I've been talking about this idea of okay is just okay. I think the factor that we're kind of really looking at is the factor of contentment. So what does it mean to be content in our walk with God and our worship of God? What, is, what, what, what am I saying when I say we've become content? Complacent. Apathetic even. What does that mean? I'm not talking about being content with what we may possess. I'm not talking about the material goods that we have or don't have. The things that we want or don't want. That's not what I'm referring to. When I say we become content in our walk with God and in our worship and in our faith, what I'm really referring to is possessing a false sense of satisfaction, a false sense of comfort that hinders us from desiring more. I've heard of wealthy people who have everything that you could possibly want that money can buy. If you were to offer them, they're already multimillionaires. If you could offer them, hey, I'll give you $75,000 if you will, do you think that even sways them? No. <laughs> That's laughable. Why do I want $75,000 to do this when I have $17 million in the bank? Please, give me a break. Until you are convinced that you need that, offers off the table. But why don't we realize that that could really change our lives? And what God is offering could really change our lives. It could really, wow, allow us to see God's hand at work if we would just take that step. If we would walk in obedience. But we've given ourselves a false sense of satisfaction and comfort. And it hinders us from desiring more, more of God in our daily life. Job 23.12 says, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I wonder if we could say that ourselves. God's word is important to me. Not just to know it, but to live it out. Because to know it and not do it, we deceive God and ourselves. See him making them, making them think that we are truly close and loving him when we're not. And we deceive ourselves and nothing changes. He says, I have not departed from God's word. I know that's more necessary than my physical food. Can we say that? Psalm 85, 6 says, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? The idea behind apathy is not convinced. Apatheo in the language means not convinced. I'm not really convinced that God is who he says he is. I'm not really convinced that God is able to do what he says he's able to do. I'm not really convinced that God is alive in my life. And because I'm not convinced, apathy sets in. And you really develop an attitude of carelessness towards the things of God. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about a complacency, a satisfied mindset. I'm okay. Besides what, nothing's going to change anyway. I love what Acts 3, 19 and 20 says. 
Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I, asked, I was asked this question as I started the sermon out today. When have I ever really seen a revival in my life? I think maybe twice. First one was in Fox River, Wisconsin. I was asked to come in for a Sunday through Wednesday. They had prayer meetings before we got there. Um, my friend Kenny Volbrecht that was here uh, a few years back visited us, spoke here on a Sunday morning. But when we went there, God just showed up. Preached Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. It was supposed to be over. And the pastor came to me and he says, Ken, you've got to stay a couple more days. God's at work. you just got to preach longer. So we ended up going through Thursday night and Friday night, and we saw God work in the hearts of people. I remember very distinctly a couple different nights when people were just up there crying on the front of the, front of the steps of the altar. And God was doing a work. God showed up. The only other time I remember that was at a church that actually asked me to be their pastor in Texas. <clears throat> Sunday morning I preached, and there was revival that broke out. The entire altar was filled, and the people that were there said, we've never seen this before, ever. People were weeping and crying and, and apologizing to each other for their attitudes towards one another. God showed up. I wonder if we've ever experienced that. And by say we, you in your lifetime have seen a hand of God movement where people said, I'm not satisfied. I'm wrong. I'm in sin, and I've got to deal with this. Because what does he say here? Psalm 85.6 says, Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice? And then he says in Acts 3.19, So that times of refreshing may come. Does anybody want to rejoice? Anybody need a hand of refreshing in your life? It starts with repentance. I'm not satisfied with the way things are. I want God to do something more, something greater, something that I can't control. He goes on in verse 20, that he may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before. Get back to where we're walking with Jesus. I'm guilty of this. Man, you know what a roller coaster is, right? Anybody ever been on a roller coaster? All three of you? All right, that's what I thought. So if you've ever been on a roller coaster, you know they have that, that heavy, hard, slowed ascent to the top, right? I remember thinking when I'm sitting on top of Masada, where one of Herod's temples was, and I remember thinking I would not want to walk up here. <laughs> they got a tram system now. You know, Jesus probably wished he had way back when. But they have this tram system that goes all the way to the top, and you're overlooking for dozens of miles. I don't even know how far. Miles and miles and miles in every direction. If I had to walk up that, it would be hard. It would be arduous, difficult, breathtaking, but slow. And I find in my walk with Jesus Christ... It takes time to get to where God wants us to be sometimes. 
It's hard work. It's not easy. But when you're walking with them, the view is great. Not without struggle, not without pain, but you know you're in his presence. Some of us need to say, I'll take that difficult walk. It starts with a step. But he says, if you'll do this, times of refreshing will come. That he may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you. We need to get back with Jesus. Back to walking in fellowship with him. In conclusion, consider the promise from God, our Father. Second Chronicles 7.14, very familiar, says, If my people, those of us who claim to have a walk with him, those of us who claim to know him as our Savior, those of us who have made a decision to put our faith and trust in him alone, those of us who are his people, he says, if my people who are called by my name will what? What's the word? Humble. He's not saying, I'm not waiting for me to humble you. He goes, I can do that. But it'd be better if we would humble ourselves. Just be honest with ourselves. Do some things need to change. He says, if you'll humble yourselves and pray and seek my face and turn from your wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's revival. Starting personally in ourselves. So in conclusion, let me ask you three questions. Is there a holy discontentment brewing in you? Are you discontent with where you're at in your walk with God? Are you discontent with what you're seeing of Him in your life? Is there a holy discontentment? Saying things got to give. Things got to be different. Secondly, is there a desire to see more of God in your life? Is there a desire to even want God to be more visible in your life? Twice this week I was reminded of Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. What was Paul saying? Paul was saying, when people look at me, I don't want them to see Paul. I want them to see Jesus. Right? Isn't that, isn't that our desire? Shouldn't that be our desire? That we don't promote ourselves. We're promoting Jesus. And secondly, when John the Baptist says, I'm not that light, I was sent to bear witness of that light. What is he saying here? I'm just a reflector of Jesus. I'm a reflector of Jesus. Is there a desire to see more of God? And then number three, is there a willingness to surrender everything and recommit ourselves to God, His Holy Spirit, and it's moving in our lives? You see, I cannot like the way I see myself in my walk with God. I can say, well, I just don't like it. Something's got to give. Um, I can really be discontent with that. I can really come to the second question and say, yeah, I really do want something more. But the action point is number three. Am I willing to do something about it? You see, if you don't think things need to change, they won't. Unless they get worse. But if you don't think you have a problem, you're not going to fix anything. 
But if you do have a holy discontentment, if you do have a desire to see God do more in your life, and if you're willing to surrender and recommit and obey the Holy Spirit's leading in your life, then I invite you to come and pray and believe. I invite you today to come and pray and believe. And if be, repent. I invite you to resurrender and see what God will do. I challenge you to give everything to God and see what He does. I challenge you to do that. I challenge you to say, God, you have everything in my life, everything that I can offer, anything that I'll ever become. God, I give it to you. I challenge you to do that and see what won't change in your life. I dare you to do that and see what God might not do to make himself more real to you. I invite you to pray for personal and corporate revival. And I close with this question, will you join me? Will you join me? I want to see God's hand. I want to see him do something. And I'm praying he'll start with me. But I pray it filters out through our entire church. Let's pray.